This is Back to Excited with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool. From Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 128. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. How's it going, Fooliman? Not too bad. How about yourself? Uh, yeah, fine. Yeah. Uh, no, it's every, every day is the same. Yeah, that's true. I feel like we've even done that intro before at this point. You know, we've oh, sustained the pod through this, and it's just been like... 100%. Yeah. We, we've, we've definitely just been like, eh. <laughs> yeah, how many exciting weeks have there been in our personal lives out of the last 45 or whatever? But, yeah, so the least I mean, played... we're, we're, we're bloggers. You can, ex- you can multiply <laughs> that by 10. Yeah. How exciting was it anyway? Yeah, but... Uh... Yeah, so the Leafs played four times this week, which is why this pod is a little bit later on Sunday that we're recording, because we wanted to get today's afternoon game in. So on Monday, Toronto defeated the Winnipeg Jets 3-1. On Wednesday, a dark day for us all, they lost to the Edmonton Oilers 3-1. They beat the Oilers 4-2 on Friday, and we are just coming off a Toronto defeat of the Calgary Flames 3-2. So... Three wins, one loss. The Leafs are sitting at five and two. And in the most elemental sense, that's a really good record. And if they mm-hmm. keep winning at that pace, they'll probably win the division. Yes. So that's um, a positive Notwithstanding that Montreal is uh, doing very, very well right now. Yes. You Montreal know, it, it, is it, killing it. it. <laughs> yeah. In a vacuum, the Leafs uh, record is certainly one to be proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll do kind of a more in-depth around the division survey in, in future weeks. But for now, since the season is so new, we'll, we'll stick with the Leafs uh, primarily. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll just quickly discuss this game, the, the Calgary game, because it's topical for now. And I assume most people listen to this kind of the day after it's released, so it'll still be at least a little bit relevant. We can spend some time on it. Um, not a ph- phenomenal game, <laughs> You know, it's, it's yes. kind, kind of one yeah. by, by goaltending. All of our goals were just awful. Really, really ugly goals. Yes, this has not been a week of pretty games, I feel like. No. And that's not necessarily to say that they've been bad. I mean, I think that they played the Flames about even, give or take. Like, I would entertain arguments as to who had the slight edge. But I think that this was a pretty close game. Jack Campbell was very good in net. Um, and that's a Na- bit of a uh, concern. For what it's worth, Natural Statric has, uh, gives them the, uh, you know, kind of decisive but not ridiculously significant edge in, you know, all the major metrics at 5-on-5, uh, five five, and then kind of similar um, all situations. Right. So, yeah, it's a close game. Calgary is a pretty good team, and they mm-hmm. were well-rested at this point due to one of the oddities of the early season scheduling. They had a lot of days off, and so you might expect them to come out a little bit loaded for bear. I don't feel, you know, super bad about it. It it doesn't do a lot to make you think that the Leafs are absolutely going to, you know, raise hell and dominate. But I think that they played a fine enough game against a fine team. So I think by and large that reflects to their credit. Um, A trend that's been pronounced to me early on and it's mostly just funny looking at the spreadsheets, but I've seen a bit of it on the ice too, is Justin Hall is killing it out there, man. <laughs> he looks good. Um, yeah. Quite good. Now, obviously he's paired very tightly with Jake Muzzin. Jake Muzzin is a way better player. He's the best defensive defenseman on the Leafs. He might be the best defensive defenseman in the Canadian division at this point. Uh, at least he's close to it. Shea Weber's still really good. Yeah, okay, fine, stupid Shea Weber. But the point is, Jake Lawson's a good player. Yes, I, uh, I will agree with that. Yeah, so, you know, we're not going to pin too many medals on Justin Hall, but it has to be said, that pairing worked quite well in Tough Minutes last year. It's worked quite well in Tough Minutes this year. Justin Hall is racking up points, although I don't really care about that. And it's been encouraging, because I think the most obvious place to upgrade if you looked at the Leafs roster, or at least one of them, was second pairing right defense. And Justin Hall has played well enough in that role that I don't think that there's a lot of urgency to do that. Upgrade on him if you can, by all means. 
But I don't know if it's your first priority when you look at where do I fix this roster. No, it's not an imminent concern right now. Um, mm-hmm. I would say what is, to sort of relate back to the game, is that we only have one Zach Hyman. Yes. And um, Hyman, he took two penalties in this game, which obviously isn't good. I think one of them was, was quite ticky-tack. Uh, but he was phenomenal in this game. He started with Nylander and Taveras, and then, you know, kind of midway through the third, moved to Marner and Matthews' line. I'm not entirely sure why that change was made, uh, because the Hyman-Nylander-Taveras line was, was great. But basically, as soon as Hyman went on to the Matthews line, that line started doing quite well, too. And I guess, like, this is one of those things where it was really obvious. Like, you can't even claim credit for being like, yeah, I knew that would, you know, moving Hyman up to the top six would work. It's because, of course, it would work. We saw, we've seen this for four years. Yeah. That's one put of the Hyman easiest two things stars. to include about the lineup. Yeah. Yeah. Put Hyman with two stars. It will go well. Um, mm-hmm. Hyman had like an 89% Corsi or, some, or, or something ridiculous like that. Like he was, you know, on it the entire game. Uh, he did exactly what you want Zach Hyman to do. He was the first man in. He was dogged on the puck. He's showing some puck skills that he definitely did not show in his earlier years. And, yeah, I mean, we don't need to go on forever about this because, you know, the people who listen to this are Leafs fans. You've watched Leafs games in the past four years. You know what Zach Hyman does when he plays with two stars, and he does it very well. Yes, there is actually one thing that I do want to remark on because I always have to compliment Zach Hyman in every opportunity, but I do feel like in the seemingly eternal stats versus eye testy kind of wars ideas like hard work and dedication and showing up and being a good pro who does it right every day to use the now disgraced mike babcock's phrase i think that sometimes stats people can say can be read as saying that those things don't matter which is not generally what they say what they usually say is okay if those things matter they will show up And Zach Hyman is the quintessential example of those things matter and you see them when he plays on lines. The numbers get right better right away, seemingly. But also in terms of the improvement in his game, he's demonstrably a more dangerous offensive player than he was at the beginning when he used to be Mr. Stonehands. I think that you actually do get to see the improvement in Zach Hyman's game that has come because he's so dedicated to making himself a better player. And... I think, you know, a lot of us like Zach Hyman. He seems like the nicest guy in the universe, but also he's just a really committed, dedicated professional hockey player. Yeah, and I don't think it will be at all painless if the Leafs and Hyman do not come to a contract agreement after the season. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, (laughs) what are we already talking about? We want two Zach Hymans, not zero. So it's going to be a tough decision because he will absolutely be in demand. And... If he wants to command a big paycheck, it's possible the Leafs are going to be priced out. He is a Toronto, you know, boy in his origin, and he apparently loves it here. So that might give us a slight edge, but it's going to be a tough decision. But for now, the question is how to play him 60 minutes a night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. And I guess what this leads into, uh, and this has been a problem with the Leafs this entire year, is kind of the other person on the wing of the, one of the two star lines. Now, maybe with Thornton healthy, um, this is less of a concern because you know, Thornton and Hyman are two incredibly different players, perhaps the two most different forwards you could possibly have. Um, but the Thornton-Matthews-Marner line was, was working, even though we thought it was suboptimal. And then you could put Hyman with Tavares and Nylander, boom, there's your top six, it's working. Mm. Um, or at least it should work. Now, with Thornton out... You know, we only have one Zach Hyman, so he goes on one of the top six lines. Who goes on the other? And the answer up to now has been Jimmy VC. Yes, it has been Jimmy VC. And that has been, I think, not great. Um, Nothing against VC as a player. I just don't think he's particularly good. Yeah, (laughs) it's nothing personal, man. But in all seriousness, every scouting report on him... All of his numbers were, he is a guy who will go to the front of the net and bash in a couple of goals there, and he will not do much of anything else 5v5. Everything I have seen from him so far this season has validated that assessment. 
everything. And, you know, he's had a couple of goals, again, because he gets to go in the right places and he's playing with good players. And I think that it could be passable. But I remember, you know, Kevin's scouting report on this was he's the kind of guy you think of as a complimentary offensive player, but he doesn't really bring enough that it's great for you to do that. And I think that's kind of being borne out with VC. He's not adding a whole lot beyond being able to finish a certain number of plays, which is not nothing. But if that's all you bring to the table, I don't think that he's good enough at it to justify playing him as in a top six role. Right. I, like this isn't, you know? this isn't Mike Hoffman here where yeah. we're talking about like, oh, this is an elite shooting talent. This guy's, you know, he, he's, he's an average offensive player. But he or like average player in the offensive zone, but he contributes almost nothing else. Yeah, and after a certain point, you need someone who contributes more than that. And again, you know, we talk about Zach Hyman; he contributes in a multiplicity of ways. Jimmy yes. VC does the one thing, and you know, by the way, I've actually thought that VC was not bad as a penalty killing forward, which was another thing that I've heard about him before. I think that he's energetic. You know, he's he's willing to pressure the opposing defense when they pull the puck back he kind of does the stop and start thing but five on five um you described him today as a poltergeist <laughs> and that is gonna stay with me for a while uh, yeah that's kind of what it is he doesn't contribute that much in a visible way and so the question becomes who goes there instead where does vc go in the right that you bump him off there so one possible answer is bring Ilya Mikhaev up to the second line. And I think both of us, we said this beforehand, um, neither of us, if, if Thor, like, cause, because Thornton's out for the next month, we can, yeah. you know, it, it's useful to think about um, the lines without him, right? That's going to be 14 games. That's a significant part of the season. That's a quarter of the season. Yeah. Um, with, so I think we're okay with having either Hyman or Mikhaev uh, on either of the top two lines, right? Like, that's kind of the next best option. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter too much where Hyman is. He, he'll be fine with either. Mikhaev has a lot of attributes that can help. He is quite big. He's good in the corners. He's fast as hell. Um, mm-hmm. And he will, you know, occasionally surprise people just by, you know, skating right around them. Yes. Uh, and that can be very useful when you have these defenders who are very preoccupied with what the two stars are going to do and forget about, oh, this guy, you know, can actually take advantage of some opportune uh, moments. Mm-hmm. The problem with uh, Mikhaev is that he is not as good with the puck on a stick as Zach Hyman, which is, is funny to say because that's certainly <laughs> not Zach Hyman's strength. Yes. But Mikhaev, uh, Mikhaev sorry, yeah. is worse at it. Mm. Yeah, he has a bit of the old Kasperi Kapanen energy, um, I, I have to say, in terms of he's a great rush monster. Sometimes a lot of his plays end with him zooming in and getting into a dangerous spot and then being like, oh, now what? And then he fires a not-all-that-dangerous shot. Now, I will say, on the penalty kill, anytime you have someone zooming away down the other end for a breakaway, that's worth it in and of itself, right? Even if they score on a low percentage of those, because you're wasting time, you're causing the penalty, sorry, the power play unit, the opposition, to have to rush back, you might psych them out a little bit, make them a little bit scared about what has just happened to them, because normally on a power play you're thinking offense, and then a breakaway brings defense back to your attention in a rather abrupt way. And so, yeah, that's all good, even if most of the time, as we know, Mikhaev doesn't score on it. At the same time, thinking big picture as a five-on-five winger, you do want someone who scores somewhat, probably more than Mikhaev is doing. And he ran really hot when he started out in the NHL, but I don't know that we can count on him to score at an especially high rate. Yeah, I mean, his point rate last year was actually quite good and probably higher than, you know, Zach Hyman's career point rate, just off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. But it it seems as though that was a bit of a shooting percentage, you know, aberration. Yeah. Um, Which it could happen again, but you don't want to bet on it. Mm Mm-hmm. And the other thing is with when, and this is, you know, also, this is essentially the same criticism we levied at Kasperi Kapanen at times. When you were on the third line and you look off Alex Kerfoot to take a, you know, 35 foot wrister from the circle 
that's one thing. It's like, okay, you know, it's not great, but we didn't have better off. We like it, the other option wasn't that good. Mm-hmm. When you look off John Tavares to do that, it's a different story, yeah. right? You 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 leave more on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mikhaev is an imperfect fit for that reason, but he might be the best we have now. I think what would be um, the best fit is a time machine applied to Nick Robertson, who right now is unfortunately also injured. Yeah, <laughs> time machine to get him through the injury and then through two or three years of growth, and we're good. Exactly, <laughs> um, but also not really an option. So we're stuck with, um, at least until Thornton comes back, we're stuck with this kind of case where one of our top two lines is going to have a pretty notable weak link on it. Mm-hmm. And that's a bit of a problem because that's really the only way we generate offense at this point. It has seemed like it, yeah. I mean, that and random scramble fluke bounces. Yeah, so I mean, theme from, from this game, and I guess we can abstract it more generally, is that the Leafs have not been an explosive offensive team at 5-on-5. Five five. No. They have not. So it, it's... And, I mean, that's weird in a lot of ways, because for all of the faults that the Leafs had in prior years, and I'm basically just lumping the entire Matthews era in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Leafs had many faults over that time, most of which we have detailed on this podcast. <laughs> uh, but one thing you could never say about them was that they were impotent offensively. Yes. They were genuinely a great, great offensive team. You know, we joked about kind of the red blob of death that showed up whenever you uh, plot their... their um, if you look at those hockey viz shot plots, you know, there's a gigantic red blob indicating a high density of, of shots taken. Uh, right at the opposing net front. That has not been there to the same degree this year. Yes, and that's worrisome. Now, I think a lot of people have been saying things like, okay, the complaint was get better defensively, get better defensively. Dave Tippett actually said this in passing after a boring-ass Edmonton Oilers Leafs game. But also a lot of people said the Leafs need to get better defensively, and the Leafs look to be better defensively. I think at times it doesn't feel like it because it feels like the Leafs are generally pretty good. It's just when they collapse, it seems especially nightmarish. And there are like five shots in a row that are 10 scoring chances. To some extent, that's true of every team. Because yeah. Obviously scrambles and rebounds are high danger I'm, and they do I'm happen. Gonna make, I'm going to make a soccer comparison kind of deep cut okay. here. Um, the Leafs defensively remind me of Brendan Rogers' Swansea side. So this is like, uh, you know, this must have been 10 years ago or eight, eight to 10 years ago, something like that. Um, it was kind of this lower mid-table team that actually, well, a team that just got promoted to, uh, to the Premier League. So they're not the most expensive team. They're not playing with stars. Uh, but they played what was seen as fairly expansive football in the sense that um, they were quite willing to take on possession. They wanted to hold possession even against good teams. Now, most teams that get uh, promoted to the Premier League, uh, kind of by necessity because they don't have great players, play the way, you would ex- the, way the Columbus Blue Jackets would play if they were a soccer team. Mm-hmm. Right? They defend deep, they hit you on the counter, they smash and grab, they try and maximize set pieces, things like that. Swansea wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. But what they did is they, they really used possession as a defensive tool. Um, they didn't have great talent, either offensively or defensively, but they could keep the ball. And when they could keep the ball, that means they weren't getting pressured. And it seems like, to an extent, that's what the Leafs do. Their defensive numbers are league-wide pretty decent. Now, it's hard to compare league-wide right now because each division is its own contained ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? But um, if we you know, ignore that and do it anyways, the Leafs are in the top 10 in uh, shot suppression. And they are... Uh, this is all by natural stat trick, by the way. Mm-hmm. And they are around average in expected goal suppression. Yeah. So, not amazing, but they've turned themselves into something that's respectable defensively, even though I would say we, they're still not great within their own zone. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that, sorry, I, that was kind of just an interruption of, of what you said. Um, no, I, I think that that's entirely valid, though, uh, is that they do look better defensively, and they also don't look as consistently great offensively. And the yes. Leafs would have these shifts, and I've seen them happen to Toronto, uh, very often for a very long time. 
But the Leafs have these very particular now offensive zone shifts where they cycle for quite an extended period and don't really seem to get the puck to the high danger areas of the ice. Right. And so you'll have these long, long shifts that seem to be set to wear the opposition out. But they don't lead to much in the way of expected goals or chances because the eventual shot that comes is kind of a long distance possibly seen all the way by the goalie faint hope sort of try or you're at least hoping that you'll cause a scramble and a rebound and again we saw it today sometimes you'll get bounces sometimes shit will go crazy but it's a little disappointing for a team with this level of offensive fire power and this level of salary invested in its star forwards not to get to the high danger areas a lot and not to look super dangerous because the Leafs right now my expected goals are about a saw off team or a little better they're killing it in shots. They look quite good by shots. Yeah, um, to that end, mm-hmm. their Corsi 4 per 60, uh, and this is including today's game, yeah. uh, is within the top, the top 10 of the league. And I mentioned their defense by Corsi was also within the top 10 of the league. So as you can expect, their Corsi 4 percentage or, and differential are both fairly good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, quite good league-wide. This pattern does not persist when you... It, like some of it gets clawed back when you start looking at unblocked shots, and then even more of it gets clawed back when you start looking at shot locations in a more robust way. Yes. And so there's all this sort of debate. It's almost like old times where it's like, okay, is it more important just to get all the shots, control the play, dominate possession, which they have a lot of nights. It was maybe less in evidence today. Yeah, I, I would say, well, we lost the Corsi battle and the, the XG battle. Um, yes. So it was definitely a, you know, a different scenario to, uh, in the Calgary game specifically. Yeah, and we are still dealing with seven games. So this is going to be probably a little haywire for a while now. But, you know, on the one hand, the Leafs do look good in terms of just lots of shots on goal. Lots of territorial time. I feel pretty confident in general that they're controlling. But when they break down, they break down very badly. And we're also not seeing the kind of A++ chances for that we really want. I am conscious in doing all this. I'm grading the Leafs on the standard of a team that I want to be a contender. And I think that, you know, especially on Twitter, I I think I was maybe a little bit more pessimistic than some people liked. And so some people were like, hey, man, just chill out. It's fine. And I want to be clear here. I'm grading the Leafs on I expect them to be really good or I want them to be really good. If the idea is just to be like a pretty decent team that should make the playoffs in the North Division, done. They should make the playoffs in the North Division. They're good enough to do that. They've been playing well enough to do that. It's fine. It's just a, in a question of being a really good team, of beating the Montreal Canadiens, who look like the other team that is going to be at the top of the division, as I think we kind of expected, but you know the Canadiens have started very strong. And so these drawbacks that we're seeing are of more concern when you're evaluating them on, is this one of the best teams? Is this a team that's going to finish first, win rounds in the playoffs, that sort of thing. And it it does give me a lot of pause that as good as our offense is supposed to be, we're not killing it to the extent that we would hope. Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're we're using the data to, to kind of illustrate this point. I think this is something that we would independently come to by looking at the eye test. This, this has been my prevailing thought about the Leafs over the first seven games. Mm-hmm. It, it's that they have, in some sense, traded off um, their offensive explosion for defensive solidity. And I'm not quite sure that trade-off is worth it, uh, or at least not, not the way that it, it's, it's been happening so far. And I don't know if it was a specific trade-off of like, okay, a conscious decision we are going to you know, cut back on offense and dial up defense. But that's been the net effect when you compare to um, prior iterations of the Leafs. Yeah. You know, and this is something that can change, obviously. They might ease into the system a bit, get more comfortable, what have you. And I know a lot of people are going to think, hang on, it's COVID season, it's crazy times, didn't really have a preseason at all, short training camp. There's going to be a feeling out period to be expected here. And that's true, but that's true of everybody. Right. You'd have to argue that that should impact the Leafs more than any other team. And I mean, 
the Leafs themselves have said that, you know, there's no more excuses, so I'm going to hold them to that. There's no more excuses. Yeah. I do think, you know, if we were to say what's the most dominant game the Leafs have had, in my opinion, it was either the second Ottawa game or the Winnipeg Jets game. Right. And I have to say, I mostly attributed that to, I thought the Jets just looked fucking awful. They really did. Yeah. And I haven't thought that they were the greatest team to begin with. Um, They did make a big uh, change that we will actually address later on in this podcast. So maybe that'll affect things. But I've always assumed that they were pretty bad because their defense looks terrible. But they did win every other game that they've played except against us. Um, You know, with middling numbers, they weren't as awful as maybe I felt like they were. So maybe it is more meaningful that the Leafs made the Jets look that bad. You know, if I want to find a more optimistic spin here, you could say, hey, Willeman, you're grading them too harshly because you think the Jets suck when in actuality the Jets are mediocre and the Leafs made them look terrible. So maybe that's something to feel good about. Yeah, no, it's very possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of sums up where I brought you to the team. Last week, what we primarily discussed was the issue of um, the second line, the Tavares-Nylander line, not mm-hmm. really generating much offense. Yes. And it's still kind of an issue. They're not generating the offense they did in prior years, but it's, no, it's not as bad as it looked in the first three games. Yeah, and I think that that's probably to be expected because like we were saying beforehand, there's too much talent there for Tavares, Nylander, and whoever, even Jimmy Vc, not to be pretty good. And I have to say, by the way, we have been you know, critical of Jimmy VC on this podcast. His numbers are fine. Yeah. And so... It's more of an eye test critique. Yeah. I get the impression he's not contributing a hell of a lot. But, you know, it's certainly survivable, to put it that way. Like, you can keep running those lines out, and it's not like I think that you're sewering the team. I'm just thinking, okay, what's optimizing here? What's the best possible outcome? I thought it was significant, by the way. You know, we talked about Alex Kerfoot as being the third line center on that kind of defensive grouping. And then Austin Matthews missed a game on Friday with uh, what has turned out to be a minor hand injury. And hopefully it won't bedevil him too much. But Alex Kerfoot was promoted to second line center effectively. And he looked really good. He had his best yes. game of the season. I had, had a strong game. Um, mm-hmm. It was him, Nylander, and who was it? Who, who was the other person on their wing? It wasn't Hyman. It must, it must have been VC then. I think it was VC. yes. Yeah. And yeah, they looked very good. And they were up against Leon Draisaitl, you know, no, yeah, no, no joke. slouch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and I'm. This is something that Catcher remarked on. Kerfoot is a, a gifted supporting offensive player, you know, and perhaps some of his skills don't get the best use when he's playing with third line more grinder ish guys, and it's kind of too bad because we sort of need him to be a third line center and not a second line winger. If we had someone better to put there, I might say Alex Kerfoot, second line left wing, is the answer. You know, that leaves you probably playing Pierre Engvall as your 3C, which I don't know if that's something you want to do long term, given that he does Mm -hmm. not have a lot of offensive talent. But yeah, just that was something that stood out to me um, for, for Kerfoot, because I think that he's been sort of a turning point for the whole roster in terms of trying to make all the pieces fit. Yeah, and, and, and broadly, when we look at the forward lines, it's pretty similar to what we, we saw, what we said last week in terms of the takeaways from it. It's, you know, the Matthews line was generally doing very well. They had a poor game today until Hyman was, was given to them, mm-hmm. and he rescued their numbers a little bit, made them look a bit good. Um, you have the Nylander Taveras grouping with VC, which... I think struggled initially. They had a real a, a lot of their kind of better numbers now are, is from that Winnipeg game where they just completely dominated. But mm-hmm. you know you can't just say throw that game away. It's one of seven games. It's a very significant data point. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you know they had a strong game again today. I thought so. It, it has been looking better, which is what we would expect. Um, but overall, it's still not the level of offense that we want slash need from them. And I guess the other concern is that we get nothing from the bottom six. Right. And when, we're re- when we're really kind of boiling it down to, you know, why are the Leafs numbers, top line numbers, when you factor in shot quality anyways, um, not that great. It's primarily the bottom two lines 
uh, if we want to split it up that way. And that, that's distributed across the defense, but it's quite associated with the Riley-Brody pairing specifically. Yes. And that's something else that we wanted to talk about. Because I think by the eye test, TJ Brody has looked pretty good. He has to me anyway. To I, me I, as well. I think that he's mo- mostly done a good job. Sorry, you were saying? No, I just said to me as well. I agree. Brody has looked good. Yeah, he, you know, he had one awful game, that first game against Ottawa, but beyond that, he's been fine. But by XG, he's had a rough ride, and he and Riley both are way underwater at that. Now, they're, they're better in shots. Maybe you think, okay, that'll work itself out with time. This has just been some, some early season craziness, maybe. But it is a little bit concerning because the whole point of that pairing is that you know, that gives us the stability for a top four, finally. TJ Brody was going to come in and fix that. And unlike with Tyson Berry, where it became apparent very quickly that wasn't going to work, I watched TJ Brody and I'm thinking, yeah, pretty much. You know, not perfect, but good. This is what I want. And yet it's not coming together to the extent that I would prefer. And, you know, Hall and Muzzin are not a problem at all. So it's just, you look at this and say, okay, will this work itself out? Or is there a disconnect here? Right, systemically, you try and think, okay, why is it going wrong? And Mm -hmm. something I've noticed broadly is that there's just been these situations where, and this holds generally across the defense cores, but across the, sorry, uh, defense pairings. It it seems like sometimes in transition, the Leafs' defense is like not quite on the same page as the Leafs' forwards. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it leads to, especially on lines where, we don't have great forward talent who can just, we can give them the puck and say, okay, gain the attacking zone, please. Um, mm-hmm. it, it can lead to really, really stunted breakouts and just kind of a complete ineptitude to get anything going offensively. And then, you know, you get stuck yeah. playing in your own zone. No one in the bottom six is really dynamic enough to make a great play to get out of it, at least on the forward, not consistently. Um, and, you know, when they do get into the offensive zone, it's, it tends to be kind of slow and none of them are great cycle offensive players because if they would, they'd be in the top six. Pretty much. So, yeah, yeah it, it just becomes a bit um, stale, I, I guess, the, the offense. And that's really where kind of Leafs offense in general has, has, has fallen off. But with, with Riley Brody, I wonder if this interaction is hurting them more than it's hurting uh, Hall and Muzzin. Yes. And I think that that's something that Maybe it has to be explored. And again, maybe you can say that might get better with more familiarity with the system and with each other. And as they kind of get into better sync, and maybe it'll look a little bit less stale just because they'll be more aware of how it's supposed to work. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think it, it is kind of concerning. And, and, you know, I think that probably our tone on this pod sounds kind of reserved for a you know, a team that's won four out of its last five. It's five and two on the season. That's good. It's very good. It's as good as we have any right to expect. And yet at the same time, they don't look as dominant as maybe we would hope. And maybe some of that is just expectation setting from the Canadian division, where we expect Toronto to be the best team and to be well ahead of some of these teams. And they haven't always looked like it. Right. Just on on one quick note on Riley Brody specifically. Uh, Their numbers, I believe, with the Hyman-Kerfoot line, which we were using basically until Thornton got hurt, are are just particularly bad. So, Mm. and and that is a line that really does lack any sort of dynamism. Um, You know, Mikheyev and Hyman are both fast, but neither of them are great puck carriers just because they don't have the puck skills. Um, So maybe, maybe there's something kind of with how those skill sets interact that make it tricky. For, um, for that grouping, and also maybe their usage as well. A um, couple quick things before we move on, because we're spending quite a bit of time kind of using this, this game very loosely as just uh, you know, a guide to talking about what we see the Leafs doing uh, generally. Um, the first thing I want to point out is that you know, so the, the dichotomy between Corsi and XG uh, between the, uh, for the Leafs is a little interesting. Um, Corsi is generally a better predictor of future results than XG. I think Drag Likepo did some uh, some work on this over the summer that confirmed this with, with updated data. However, 
Um, I think people often take that to mean, oh, okay, don't ever use XG for predicting, use Corsi for predicting, it's way better. No, it is very slightly better. Mm -hmm. Like to an almost, you know, an almost insignificant degree, especially when you start looking at more recent data, or more recent seasons. They are both similarly poor at predicting future hockey outcomes because hockey is quite random and quite dependent on goaltending, which is um, a bit harder to predict. Yeah. So, you know, the, it, it, it's worth noting that looking at XG is still valuable, right? Um, and part of the reason XG is less predictive than Corsi is because um, of the way N the NHL records data, which results in XG basically essentially being based on Fenwick, unblocked shots, as opposed to Corsi, which is based on all total shots. So you essentially reduce the sample size within the right. same game. Um, and that, that create or the number of events within the same game, which um, kind of reduces your statistical power to some extent. So th that's, that's um, one thing I just wanted to mention. The other thing on that note is typically XG and Corsi are quite heavily correlated. The, the divergence that we see with the Leafs, where they're like an elite Corsi team and a meh XG team, I would not expect that to persist over the course of an entire season. Maybe it's very it will, rare that shots yeah. and like, you know, shots weighted for quality are that different. You know, I know the Minnesota Wild have been kind of an exception in that, but the vast majority of teams, I think, or at least in my experience, they, they wind up close together, as you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. that's something to keep our eyes on. Last thing I want to touch on in this game was the situation with Jack Campbell. Mm. So uh, I'll just quickly recap it for those who maybe didn't see the game or uh, don't recall, but the Leafs are defending a 3-2 lead late. Uh, Jack Campbell takes a shot and is just kind of fidgeting afterwards. He looks awkward. Uh, Kelly Rudy on the broadcast, former goaltender, I believe, kind of immediately points out, like, oh, Campbell doesn't look right. He looks like he, mm -hmm. he's injured. And as play goes on, it becomes more and more clear that Campbell is indeed um, hurting, right? It's not just an equipment issue. He's, like, kind of really fidgety, really awkward, trying to, like, work something out in his leg or his hand or somewhere. Um, and, yeah, it just kind of continues like that. Uh, eventually, he has to come make another save. And here it becomes really, really apparent that he's quite hurt because he basically uses his stick like a cane to get back up. Mm-hmm. Which is a little disconcerting. Um, so there's a stoppage, and the Leafs, for some reason, decide to keep him in for the last... I think this happened. This stoppage happened with maybe a minute, maybe 30 seconds left in the game or something like that. Um, and he had to make a few more saves, and you know we got out of it and got out of it with the win. Um, now, we don't know what this injury is. Campbell, quite predictably, uh, downplayed it in, in the media. Um, but it did seem weird that they would... That a very obviously hurt goalie continue to play it's yeah it's a bit of a strange look uh, i don't want to judge without knowing what the injury is uh and but it's worth noting it was probably the most notable part of this game it certainly stands out and you understand the emotional side of it obviously jack campbell played a great game he deserved the win and now he would have gotten the win anyway by conventional scoring because he was on when the winning goal was scored but I know that there is an impulse to say, let the guy finish what I've started. I'm sure Campbell wanted to stay in if he was at all capable of it. That was by his own account anyway. At the same time, part of the job of the coach is to have a perspective that the players can't always have and to act in their best interest at times. And so, yeah, it, it was surprising that he was sent back in. We hope that he's, you know, feeling good, that this is nothing lingering, uh, not least because the next goalie up is Michael Hutchinson. And while he's a very nice guy, I think we all have some bad memories with that. Yes. So, yeah. Something to keep an eye on, I guess. Yep, very much so. Um, okay, was there anything else you wanted to mention about that game? Uh, no, nothing in particular. I think we've, we've covered it. Okay, great. So, um, what is next on the list? I'm... I'm quite disorganized I, I lost my place in our in our notes it's all right so we yeah we've covered the Leafs and we wanted to talk about something that does not directly involve the Leafs but was one of the biggest player for player trades oh, right. that we've yes. had in some time yes yes so uh I'll lay out the elements of it the Winnipeg Jets traded Patrick Laine and center Jack Roslovic 
uh, to the Columbus Blue Jackets. And the Jackets sent Winnipeg, Pierre-Luc Dubois, the center, and a 2022 uh, third-round pick. So Dubois and Laine were two players who had both made trade requests. They didn't want to be where they were. Uh, the Dubois situation seemed to boil over in the first week of the season, with John Tortorella becoming increasingly frustrated with how he believed Dubois was playing. And some people were alleging that Dubois was kind of dogging it to force the issue, basically to be uh, difficult or frustrating enough that finally the Blue Jackets would say, okay, screw it. Uh, he obviously denies that that's what he was doing. I have no idea. But if he was trying to do that, it worked. Anyway, uh, so there, there Dubois... Was, uh... Sorry, yeah, just to, sorry, there was a, a shift that he got benched, I think, in a game on Friday. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a shift that, like, most people seem to think, okay, this is what caused the benching. And, and he got, like, outmuscled off the puck by Tyler Johnson, who was tiny. Um, and, yeah, may, maybe he was taking it easy. Maybe it's just, it's a, he was not in a great spot. It's a bad work environment. It can be hard to, you know, play at your best when that's the case. But for whatever reason, uh, it, it was a genuinely pretty bad shift. Yeah, there were a lot of, so a flyby in hockey, and this is a derogatory term, is when the opposing player has the puck and you're kind of going past them, a flyby is you try and poke the puck off their stick while going by them. And if this works, you knock the puck loose and you're behind them, so you're in a position to maybe get an odd man rush, but certainly you're on the attack with space and it's a lot of fun. And you get to go play offense, which is the fun part of the game. But if you don't knock the puck away from him, as you would expect would happen a lot of the time, the other guy is behind you. You're not much of defensive use because you've zoomed off in the other direction. And now the play is coming at your team's end of the ice without you there to do much about it. As you can imagine, it frustrates coaches immensely when players do a lot of flybys. Um, because it's basically saying, I'm willing to gamble our defensive structure in order to go and try and get a chance for myself, even also, if it's not that great a chance. Flybys are easy to do. Like, it's, yes. it's very, like, you know, it, it, as you said, it, it's the fun thing. It's like, you know, it, it, for all the fun we make of kind of the grart and grit chart type people, like, flybys are genuinely both not very gritty and also not a good hockey play for the most part. Yeah. The risk-reward is very much, this might work out nicely for me, and it's easy. Whereas what you would hope that the player does, and Justin Bourne remarked on this, he did a little analysis of Dubois' shift, is you want him to stop on the puck, as the saying goes, where you get in the face of the guy, you engage, you physically block him from moving, you knock it loose, you get into a puck battle. You might get a little bit bruised up. It's a contact sport. But it's harder work, obviously, than the flyby. And so... There was a lot less of that going on. Dubois is a big boy, and he's also a pretty committed uh, puck-battling player, as we learned last year in the series between Toronto and Columbus. You know, he's not a shrinking violet by any means in terms of physical play. So I have to admit, looking at it, I can see why people thought that he was trying to angle the force of trade. Who knows? But at any rate, the trade happened, and... It involved Dubois, who I think everyone considers a first-line caliber center, and Patrick Laine, who at least at one point was contending for the most dangerous shooter in the world. And I think a lot of people still think that he is doing what he used to in terms of being such a dangerous shooter, and he's still really good. But when Patrick Laine broke in, he was shooting like prime Steven Stamkos. He was scoring on 18% of his shots, if you watched his shot, you would immediately be like, oh, holy shit, this guy has the hugest cannon of a slap shot I've ever seen. His stick looks like a longbow when it bends <laughs> in terms of him winding up and then uh, flattening it down. And then the last two seasons, he's been a good scorer, but not that great. Like, if you look at five on five, you know, depending on where you set the minutes cut off, he looks like a good first-ish liner which is not what you expect from Patrick Laine, Destroyer of the World. When I say good first-ditch liner, I might be overselling it, depending on where you set the cutoff. He could 
dropped to second line. <laughs> and that's disappointing. So you wonder what was going on in Winnipeg. Was it that he wasn't getting the center quality? You know, he wasn't always playing with Mark Shifley. And can Columbus bring that back for him if he's more engaged? So yeah. I guess my starting point on it is, you know, is looking at Patrick Laine because he seems to me like he could score 45 goals next year. And everyone will say, wow, what a great trade for Columbus. Or he might not. Yeah, I mean, in the circumstances, you know, I'm putting on my Pierre Lebrun hat. It's, it's a great trade for both sides. <laughs> <laughs> I think it genuinely is, though. Yeah. Like, I think that for what conceivably could have been a distressed asset, you know, they did pretty well for each other. For sure. I mean, you could argue that both clubs shouldn't have put themselves in this situation. It's hard to, I think, argue that really conclusively because we don't really know the reasons why each player requested a trade. Yes. But... And so... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. But yeah, I mean... Each club traded a guy who did not have a future in this in in this in the team they were at um, for a really really strong player. Line mm-hmm. is is interesting because there is a tremendously high variance with what he could be. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if you look at his if you look at him over the course of his entire career, his goal scoring looks you know pretty close to elite. But it does cause some concern in that. The last two years, the most recent and relevant parts of that, are, no, are nowhere near elite in terms of goal scoring. And Line also does not provide that much else outside of his goal scoring. Mm-hmm. That's his calling card. And, you know, there's no universe where he's not a useful player. But it's the difference between, you know, being a good goal scorer, who doesn't do a whole lot else, and being one of the very best in the world, which is what he was his first two seasons, and what he hasn't looked quite as much like. Now And the thing is, you might say, okay, his line mate quality in Winnipeg was not always the greatest. Sometimes he felt like he was a bit the odd man out. The impression from some of the chatter is that that played a role in him asking for a trade. But he's going to Columbus now, who just, in the course of this transaction, traded their best center. And now we're looking at maybe Max Domi to work with? You know, who's a good playmaker, but I don't know. Uh, if he's really going to give them what they're asking for. He would definitely help their power play. They had Oliver Bjorkstrand in, like, the role that I assume Patrick Laine will play as, like, yeah. the big gunner. And, I, you know, we like Bjorkstrand. He's a good player. He's not Patrick Laine. He's no, not n- now they'll have someone taking shots from bad locations, but it's someone who, you know, should be taking shots from bad locations. Yeah, they're good locations when it's Patrick Laine doing it. Yeah, at least if he's, you know, still the shooter, we, we kind of believe he is. Um, yeah, so... It's like the world's most convoluted plan to set up Oliver Bjorkstrand one-timers. It's, it's not good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. But yeah, it, it's, it's a very, very interesting trade. You know, Roslovic, I like Roslovic a little bit. Um, I don't think he's great or anything, but I think, you know, there might be a player there. Uh, but it, this, this is line A for PLD, really. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Now, people are talking about Roslovic, who, by the way, was refusing to sign a contract which is his prerogative, to be clear. I don't think it's incumbent on him to sign a contract, but he told Winnipeg, he's like, I don't want to play here anymore. And so they traded him and he signed in Columbus immediately. And that's fine. I've seen some people saying, you know, if Roslovic turns out to be a second line center, then this is going to be a, you know, a really great trade for Columbus. And I'm like, yeah, that would involve him getting a fair bit better though than he's ever shown himself to be here to four. You know, I, I, like, I think he's a fine player, but I, I don't know that I'm seeing anything like that on the radar. And he's about to turn 24. So, yeah, yeah. he's more of a spare part. As for uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois, I mean, we saw a lot of him in the playing round. He was excellent in the playing round. Um, he didn't have as good a year last year, as I think as a, lot of, a lot of people... Um, expected or maybe thought that he had mm-hmm. I, I thought you know when looking into columbus for the play-in round i thought oliver bjorkshan was their best forward last year right he was the forward who had the best 2019 2020 season in my opinion uh that doesn't necessarily mean he is their best forward period right mm-hmm. um dubois is, is younger and conceivably has more offensive upside but dubois did seem to struggle without Artemi Panarin a little bit, you know, relative to what 
you would hope in, in the most rosy of, of scenarios. Um, in Winnipeg, he gives them really tremendous center depth, really, really tremendous center depth with, with Shifley, Dubois, uh, Stastny, and then Adam Lowry, right? That, those are four good centers. Yeah, and it's worth noting the special value of this to Winnipeg because Winnipeg has a problem with stars leaving. So does Columbus, by the way. But uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois' father is in the Winnipeg Jets organization. Presumably they had some idea of his willingness to commit to the market when they traded for him. You know, I know that they've got him for a couple of years right now, but they're hoping, you know, to keep him longer term and he'll be an RFA at the end of it. And so if they could run out Shifley and Dubois for the next four, five, six years, that's a very good start to your forward core. And then they combine them with Nick Ehlers and Kyle Connor, and you're off to the races, even as Blake Wheeler gets old. So, yeah, I, I certainly see it from the Winnipeg Jets, and I see it from both sides, but I think the Jets had the better end of the trade, just because I think the the good outcome for the Winnipeg Jets seems to me to be like pretty much baked in. I'm not saying nothing can go wrong, but like you immediately see, okay, Dubois can walk in and be a second line center there, no problem. You know, they bump Stastny to the wing or down to third line center, which is fine. It's right there. It's worth it. It's good. Line A didn't want to be there anymore, and it was going to be an issue. So, yeah, do this and get a great center back. With Columbus's end of it, you still see what they were doing, and you can still see how it works out for them quite well. And they just got the best offensive player in their organization, and they need someone who can do that. But again, there's a wide range of outcomes with line A. There's a big difference between being a good scorer and one of the very best. He needs a contract this summer, and I assume he's going to demand quite a lot of money because Columbus just traded for him and kind of committed to him. So he can say, okay, you want me that bad pony up. So I think that it's, it is in the LeBron phrase, a good deal for both sides, but I think that it's maybe a safer deal for the Jets. Yeah. Like I don't see the same downside risk. I can see that. With the interesting, interesting thing with Line A as well is, you know, mm-hmm. should he return to form, um, you immediately have to pay him. He's not a player who is ever going to be underpaid. Yes, goals get you dollars. So. So that's yeah, a, yeah that like yeah. exactly. Um, and, and Dubois, I think some people are underrating Dubois' offensive upside a little bit, um, in part because you know Columbus's power play was so bad, and. Mm-hmm. To Line's credit, he is a power play unto himself. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure you could get an average to a slightly above average power play basically just by saying, okay, we're just going to run one play. It's going to set Line up for one-timers. That's it. Well, um, that's the thing, right, is you can do the Ovechkin thing where it's like he can post up at the top of the circle and you can almost leave him alone the rest of the time or, you know, have him pass as required. But you just kind of leave him for the cross-shot threat, and the defense has to respect that. And then your four remaining guys have more to work with, even if they're just kind of ordinary offensive players. Like, just having that undeniable threat warps the whole penalty kill, because it's something that they have to worry about. And that's always been what Ovechkin has done. Yeah. Um, to opposition. Yep. So, um, but yeah, like, you know, it's, it's a really interesting trade. It's nice to have these sorts of trades happen, because it, it's... You know, exchanging two good hockey players. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, there's, there's just there's so much variance about Line A specifically, and also with how bad his defense is, right? So, you know, in the interest of being, you know, completely fair here, um, we said, okay, there's variance with how his shooting is, but skater defense is the one thing that we have a hard time, hardest time measuring. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that is not necessarily repeatable year to year, and then it's essentially not repeatable at all when someone changes teams. And now that line is going to a team that, you know, prides itself so much on its defensive structure, and they, they do a phenomenal job of that, um, it will really be interesting to see how those interact. Because, you know, watching line, he does not seem to be good defensively at all. The numbers seem to bear that out. Uh, he's not, you know, Phil Kessel. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's not going to win a Selkie. He's never going to be mistaken for Yuri Lettinen either. Yeah. So I do think that... Uh... Sorry, I was just going to say, a Mm -hmm. lot of the isolated metrics, I feel like, are going to have a hard time with Line A, even if he is 
um, fine enough defensively in Columbus because they think most of the Columbus players are good defensively. And I think that line A having not been so great before and then coming in, I don't think he's going to make them better. True. So, so they will attribute yeah. the credit primarily to uh, the people who are already there. But Line A should get some yeah. of the benefit too. Yeah, some of it, for sure. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. I'm interested to see how this will play out. Uh, there, there was also, you know, just to tie this back to the Leafs, as all things should be, uh, there was also a rumor, <laughs> um, I think mentioned on the weekend, that the Leafs were looking for another forward. Um, the fuck are we going to trade? <laughs> yeah, that's the problem is, you know, like, I, I mean, your first round pick is the thing that obviously occurs to you, which is always kind of a, a nervy trade to make. Mm-hmm. But, you know, how else are we going to do it? I don't think anyone is paying top dollar for Travis Dermott, even if you really want to do that. No, and I, I should mention Dermott, because I think he's been fine to start the year. Yeah. Uh, and I thought he actually had a decent game, uh, a decent game against Edmonton, the second game, and also mm. a decent game against uh, Calgary today. Uh, but he's, he's not taking anyone's job right now. Right. Um, no. And so, I think that a lot of people want him to do that for understandable reasons, because they like him, because they think he's talented, whatever. But there's absolutely no argument that I can see to replace Justin Hall with him, unless it's just we think Travis Dermott is an important part of the future of this organization. At this point, I, maybe we should uh, replace Morgan Riley with him. Well, eh, yeah. But anyway, and, you know, the expansion draft hangs over all of this, both in terms of conceivably trading Dermot away and in terms of everything else, right? Yes. You know, your fourth most important defenseman is probably getting exposed, so. Yeah, yeah which, which is interesting. Like we, uh, If Hall continues this, we might have to make a side deal to say, please don't take Justin Hall. <laughs> That'd be funny. I mean, you could run the 4-4, which essentially means we expose Alex Kerfoot. Yeah. Which I and don't I, love I, doing either, and no. I wouldn't do it to protect Hall. But you know, he's been good. It's yeah. it's just nice having a defensive pairing that doesn't suck. Because like most of our <laughs> defensive pairings were like, okay, you know, it was either Jake Gardner having terrific Corsi with fucking Connor Carrick or whoever, and you're like, but you know, that's not real defensive work, right? Like they're gonna out Corsi their opposition or something. Um. Or, or it was like Morgan Riley and random guy. Whereas Muzzin Hall, I'm like, I can see why that works. It actually makes sense that that pairing is sort of good defensively. So Yeah. yeah. Um, regarding the trade thing, mm-hmm. the other complicating factor, and this is a factor for Dubois in um, Winnipeg as well, is that you know anyone who we trade for from an American team will have to quarantine here for 14 days, probably miss seven games as a result. Yes. So, and anyone you trade away is, of course, gone mm-hmm. in that process. Yeah, so you, so you run so shorthanded. You're, for... you're weakening yourself for a couple of weeks. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. So, and if you limit it to players in Canada, they're, you know, it, it's slim pickings. It's really, really slim pickings when you look at okay, you know, who is possibly available, right? Like, yeah, I'd love to get Brendan Gallagher, but you know, Montreal's not trading him. Um, mm-hmm. So when you look at who is available, you look at you know the salaries. You know, we don't have much cap space, so uh, unless you're a big fan of Tyler Mott. I wouldn't really hold my breath. <laughs> that can't be a category with a lot of names in it, can it? You know, big fans of Tyler Mott. <laughs> no, probably be... just if the Mott family listens to this, which I, yes, I'm, it may maybe they're big Leaf fans, but you never know. It. In which case, no disrespect. He's a fine player. We're just saying, yeah. I mean, now as teams maybe play themselves out a little bit, maybe that gets a little bit more viable. Yeah, but that just uh, makes Tyler Mott is... more available because he's on Vancouver. Yeah, Vancouver is having an awful start to the year, which is very funny. But yeah, we, I won't go on long about that. But at, at present, I don't see an easy trade to make. Obviously, you know, if you're willing to throw your, your picks in, if you're willing to wait out the quarantine, all that sort of stuff, you can go out and start looking for a second line left wing. No problem. And, you know, you just have to be willing to live with the cap consequences which is also a bit of an issue for the Leafs. You know, they were trying to build up some cap space through certain maneuvers. And uh, now this is getting arcane and the rules seem to change on me all the time, or I feel like they do. But their current use of LTIR for for Joe Thornton is complicating that a little bit. Yes. But yeah, anyway, so we'll see... uh, 
whether they've put themselves in a position to make a trade going forward. Yeah. All right. So I think that's everything we really wanted to cover, correct? Yep. Awesome. So uh, thank you for listening. You can catch all the Mind and Fuleman's work at PensionManPuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. We'll see you in a week. Mm-hmm.